We're going to continue in our study. Knowing the living God. I want to begin first with just a recap of what we considered last week. Remember that this first chapter, the way that it's set up, is really sort of providing us with the motivation to continue in the study, the, a, a motivation, a push to study the attributes and the character and the nature of God. And as I was thinking about just that very idea, and uh, it, it caused me to ask, why, why do we have to be motivated? Why does anybody have to say, uh, y- you would really benefit from, from a study of the attributes of God. You, you should, uh, maybe you should consider a workbook like this, The Knowledge of God. Have you ever read... Uh, the Attributes of God by Pink. Have you ever read the uh, Existence and uh, Attributes of God by uh, Charnock? Uh, have you ever read uh, Knowing God by Packer? And there, there's books about God, uh, Knowledge of the Holy by Tozer. Um, why does anybody have to come to us and say, let me, let me urge you? Why does, anybody, why does he have to begin this book by saying, hey, there's some benefits to knowing God and there are also some some uh, detriments that come to us if we don't know God and therefore that should motivate us to study the attributes of God. Why, why, should, why is that? Why is it not that we just come out of the womb running after a knowledge of God? Or, and we would say, well, obviously by nature we're, we're born in sin. Okay, then why is it that at being born again with a new nature... Why is it that we don't just wake up every day and fling ourselves into searching, seeking, begging and pleading with God that we might know Him more, that He would show us more of Himself? Why does anybody have to say, uh, here, here there are some benefits of knowing God, there are some dangers of not knowing God, and you take all that into account, surely that will motivate you to, to study and to know God more. And, and really it just reveals what we, we know of ourselves first that that we are cold, uh, we very often will read or go through one study and we think, well, there, I've, I've got it covered. I think also, if you just look at the size of the book that we're going to be working through, a study of the attributes of God is just that. It's work. It's going to take time. It's going to take uh, diligent study and meditation upon Scripture passages, some of which we, we don't spend a lot of time with uh, outside of a study like this. And we have a tendency to just kind of tucker out and want to give up. Can we move on to something else? Is there not some other study? I hope that you'll be praying as we go through this. Maybe every evening on the Lord's Day you'll pray that, that our hearts would be warmed again by the, the, the flame of the knowledge of God and who God is and helped by His Spirit, be encouraged to continue on with this and that we wouldn't grow weary. But we began last week by considering the, the knowledge of God. The first heading was the greatest of all knowledge and we, we simply pointed out that of all of the things that men might boast in, that men might seek uh, comfort or refuge in, that they can conjure up or come up with, far surpassing them all is this one fact or this one reality of knowing God. If a man knows God, he has nothing to fear. If, if I know God, 
that in itself is the only refuge that I'll ever need for all of eternity. If you know God, that's all that you need. And I would say the more that you study and the more that you come to know God, the more you will realize that that's true. We, we say it, we confess it, but a lot of times we, we fall back into disbelief. I, I, I know that He is my only refuge, but then we begin to look to other things, to seek refuge in other things. The more you know God, the more you move into this real experiential, intimate acquaintance with who God is, the more you will actually realize it is so. I don't need anything else now or for eternity. It's the greatest of all knowledge. Then we looked at uh, some of the benefits of knowing God. The first one was understanding. When we come to know God, we, we have a useful working insight into reality. We live in a created realm, a created creation that God created for His purpose, uh, for Himself. Apart from knowing God, nothing really makes sense. There, there's no uh, honest fulfillment in any endeavor whatsoever if we don't know the God who started it all, who began it all. Knowledge or understanding comes from knowing God. The second one was trust or faith. And we pointed out that the more that you know God, the more you increase in faith. And we'll see the flip side of that this evening. But there's no way that you can read the Bible over and over and over again. See what God has done as we just read of the children of Israel recounting there in that prayer. We did this, yet you did not forsake us. And we sinned, yet you did not forsake us. And you gave us all of these things and we got fat, and yet we languished again, and yet you did not forsake us. Over and over. How could they then come to the end of that prayer and say, but we think you might forsake us now? Well, that wouldn't happen. They, they knew what, that's what they were saying. God has never forsaken us. That increased their faith. The third one was spiritual strength. Spiritual strength, strength of soul, being strengthened in God. The, the, all of the faculties of the inner man uh, work, we might say, firing on all cylinders in a way that God has designed them to function and that in a way that pleases God and seeks after God and to live in a manner that uh, God prescribes. Spiritual strength. Then the fourth one was perseverance. The text was 2 Timothy 1.11, For this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. A person. I know whom I have believed. And coming out of that, I'm convinced that He is able, He is powerful, He is omnipotent to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. Knowing God, you become convinced that anything you lay in His hands, He will guard. He will keep and, until the final day. So then we come to the second part of this chapter, and, I'll, and I'm just going to work through the end of this chapter and, and we'll be done. I don't want to move into the next one yet. The main heading here is the dangers of not knowing God. And he gives us six of them. Six dangers of not knowing God. Number one, remaking God in our own image. Number two, false worship. Number three, unbelief or lack of trust. Number four, an indifferent or apathetic view of sin. Number five, lawlessness. And then number six, ultimately, divine judgment and destruction. 
So I want to walk through these and we'll look at these passages of Scripture. The first one is remaking God in your own image. The first danger of not knowing God is remaking God in your own image. Now here's a, a fact that we have to understand. We are created to worship. We're, we're made that way. Every one of us will worship something. As a matter of fact, every one of us wakes up every day and with the first cognition, the first thought that passes through our minds, we begin to worship something. Right out of the gate, we, we worship something. We're made that way to ascribe worth and value to something or someone. Now, uh, very often, any time that we worship anything, we call it a god. Naturally, that which we worship is simply self. We worship ourselves. You know that. Think about it. The alarm goes off. What is your first thought? It's intuitive. It's natural. It is self-preservation. No, not now. Not It's too early. More sleep. Pamper me. More comfort. More warmth. I don't want to move. That's our first thought. It's our self. Now... As Christians, our concept of God is based on the Scriptures, hopefully. And so when it comes to idolatry, when it comes to, to worshiping something besides God, we, like the Israelites, the Hebrews of old, will still use Yahweh, the only true God, as our template, you might say. In, in Exodus chapter 32, verses 4 and 5, it's... Speaking of Aaron and the, the Israelites there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And it says, And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, you see how they're describing this calf by saying, They brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, there's only one God who done that. That They're using Yahweh still as their template. Then they go on. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, or to Yahweh. We're going to gather around this thing, that, and we're going to ascribe to it the acts of Yahweh, and then tomorrow we're going to have a feast to Yahweh, but here's the form. Here's, we've, we've used Yahweh as our template, but now we've, we've built this golden calf. That's what we tend to do. We, we are, as Christians, we are not so... Um, I, don't, I don't know the word you want to, want to use. I would say base, but I think that now means something else. Um, we are typically not so uh, degraded in our thinking that we would use Buddha or, or some other or Molech as the template for our, our idolatry. We will still lean towards the God of the Bible and give our... Our, our idolatry, a flavor or a color, a, a hint of the God of the Bible. And yet, if we don't know God, if we don't know the God of the Bible or we're, we're lacking in our knowledge of the Bible, though it may have the hint or the hue or even uh, the shape of the God of the Bible, it'll, it'll actually be in our own image. It'll be a God like ourselves. Without the knowledge of God, we remake the true God after ourselves. Now, the text that he uses is Psalm 50, 21. And you can turn there with me. Psalm 50, 
verse 21, or if you have the, the book, you've got it there in front of you. Now, rather than just read verse 21, I want to back up to verse 16. To the wicked, God says, what, have, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For, and here he's going to describe their actions. You hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. So there he, he describes several of their sins. And then he says in verse 21, These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. The note says, in the absence of a true knowledge of God, man will form his own opinions and remake God in his own image. Why is that? Because we will worship. We are going to worship something. Without a true knowledge of God, we make God in our own image. Now, in the passage, notice what's happening. God says, these were your sins, and, and God kept silent for a time. He didn't immediately lash out and inflict vengeance. And in light of that, they thought God is like us. Now let's think about this. What exactly were they thinking about God? They sinned. God was silent. They thought He was like them. What were they thinking about God? Maybe they were thinking in light of the fact that He kept silence that God's not really concerned about sin. Maybe they thought, in light of the fact that God kept silence, God is actually capable, He's able, of, able to ignore sin, just completely disregard it as if it didn't even happen. Or maybe they thought, God is slow to execute judgment. Now, that's how we are. We're, we're usually not very concerned about sin. Uh, our own sins especially, we're very often able to overlook them, to ignore them. We don't mind slow execution of judgment when it comes to our sins. We usually want swift judgment when it comes to the sins of others. But we don't mind to be slow. Those are things that are true about us. They were probably thinking the same things about God. But what do we actually know about God? Exodus 34.7 says that He will by no means clear the guilty. By no means. There, 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 there is no reason that can be presented that would lead God to clear the guilty. It can't happen. No means, no way that God can clear the guilty. His justice must deal with sin. We are not like that. We don't mind letting the guilty go free, especially if it's us. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count, count slowness. Now there the reference is the promise to the people of God, but the flip side of that same truth is the coming of His judgment, His execution of judgment upon the wicked. God's not slow. They, he actually, Peter actually uses the flood narrative as the, uh, the, the, the parallel. 
judgment. God's not slow to fulfill His threats, we could say. The passing of time to us is not the same as it is with God. He's not like us. If God acts in His time, that might seem slow to us, but it's not slow to Him. We can't reckon time the way God reckons time. We can't imagine that He's like us in that way. He's not slow. They do all of these things. God kept silence, but He's not slow. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. People say, God's kept silence. He's not doing anything. God says, no, wrath is being poured out even now. It might not look like what you think, but wrath is revealed. Is a nation allowed to just continue on in unrestrained wickedness? Then they say, look, we're getting away with it. God's not doing anything. We're free. There is no God. And God says, no, that is my wrath. It's the grace of God that would restrain any wickedness. They were thinking that God was like them. And this is what happens. They they didn't know these things about God. He will by no means clear the guilty. He's not slow. He doesn't reckon time like we reckon time. His wrath can be poured out in ways that we... We don't think about. We think it has to look this way. And God says, no, if I just let you go, that is wrath. These are, that's how God is. But we begin to think that He's more like us. If God's angry, surely He'll lash out and say some really harsh words, at least. Surely He'll throw something, because that's what we do when we're angry. We imagine that God is like us. We recreate God in our own image. Can you imagine as I thought about this, this idea that God kept silence. He, di- he didn't immediately lash out and so they begin to think that He was like themselves. But can you imagine after 60 seconds in hell that the sinner will reflect, reflect on her life or his life after 60 seconds in hell and think, it's about time. Man, I was beginning to think judgment wouldn't come. Well, that took long enough. Or after 60 seconds in hell saying, well, at least I got those 80 years of pleasure. The price is well worth it. I mean, that was a long time. God's judgment sure waited all those years. No. It won't, it won't, it won't be worth it. it a, a minute in hell will make everything that preceded it as a blink of an eye. It's all over. And now only eternity. And yet men think that because God is not immediately inflicting justice that He's like us. He's slow. He's taking His time. No, it's not slow. In God's thinking, 80 years, 100 years, however long the earth has been in existence, is that a short time to the everlasting God? No, it's all a blink to Him. It's not slow. If life is like a vapor then a puff of breath on a cold morning is really all that exists between conception and damnation for the wicked. This week when the temperature drops, go outside and breathe and watch it go. A puff. That's what life is like. And yet we think that since God isn't immediately lashing out, well, He must be like a slow, ignoring sin, overlooking sin, pushing things away. And if you're here, that breath has already been exhaled. It's already, the vapor has already gone out. What stands between you 
who do not know God and an eternity under His fury right now, if life is a vapor, to us it seems so long. Oh, it's just, it's just dragging by. As you get older, you start to think things like this. It's already November 2022. You realize time's not going quite as slow as we thought it was. Eternity is very near to every one of us. Very near. And when it gets here, we'll realize that it was, it was always closer than we ever imagined that it was. God's not like us. Don't excuse the fact that God has not come and swiped your legs out from under you in your sin. Don't mistake that for, well, maybe God is not seeing. Maybe God's ignoring some of those sins. Maybe those won't catch up to me because they will. You don't want to make the mistake of remaking God in your own image. It doesn't pay. It's not going to be worth it to find out in the judgment, well, I just made my own God in my own image because you will meet the real God in the blink of an eye. You'll be in His presence. So that's one of the dangers of not knowing God, remaking Him in your own image. The second one is false worship. False worship. Now, worship... I hope that we would agree. Worship is a, a costly thing. Worship is involved. It, it takes effort. It takes time. It takes thought. And again, imagine that one day you stand before God and you realize when you see Him, well, that's not what I was worshiping. Your worship had been false for your whole life. Well, that's what he's describing here. If you don't know God, one of the, one of the dangers is that your worship will be found out to be false. Turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 22, he, he takes us here to the woman at the well. I'll just read the one verse. Jesus says to her, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's talking to her this way because she's a Samaritan. The Samaritans had set up their own order and arrangement of worship not far from Jerusalem. They were trying to mimic a lot of the ways and patterns of Israel. They were well invested in their worship, and yet their worship was not according to the prescriptions given by God. Therefore, at the end of the day, it's worthless. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't account for anything if your worship is false. Why was it false? Because they didn't know the true God. They thought, well, this, this God can be worshipped by our own inventions. Yeah, He gave these prescriptions. Perhaps they knew of some of them. I, she, she mentions Jacob. She, they knew of the fathers. They knew some things. They probably took that and they said, well, that God can also be worshipped in these ways, by these people, in this place. Not according to His prescriptions. And then they invested themselves in their worship. And Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. Your worship is false. Thinking wrongly about God, they found themselves worshiping a God that they did not actually know. Now, I do want to be clear here that this is different than merely being untaught concerning some details about the nature, character, and attributes of God. And I thought about this back when we initially went through the attributes of God in our confessional study. One of the attributes that I learned that I had never heard of before was the aseity of God. I had never heard of that. You might be here and you say, I've never heard of that in my whole life. The aseity of God. Now, prior to coming to that understanding, it, it wasn't as though all of my worship was false because I was ignorant of that, that truth about God. God doesn't say 
from the very start, you need to know everything or your worship is, is useless to me. That's not what he's saying here. Y'all are just untaught. This, this false worship was, was more of a rebellious and contrary, a, a, a haughty type of worship, assuming that God could be worshipped in any way they pleased. As we learn about God, that simply fills more and more of our understanding of who God is. Hopefully we would all say when it comes to... Maybe you say, well, I don't even know what the word aseity means. Well, what I, if I ask you, do you think that God is dependent upon anyone? You say, well, of course not. Well, you might know a little bit more about aseity than you think. You've just never heard that terminology. This is different than just being untaught in some areas. A very basic... Uh, childlike faith in the revelation of God is sufficient to offer true worship. Again, imagine the horror of learning at the judgment that all of your church attendance, all of your participation in worship, all of your singing, all of your praying had been rendered to a God that you created in your own heart and mind. He wasn't the real God. All your worship, therefore, was false because you didn't actually know the God of the Bible. Or imagine... Like we see in Matthew 20, 25, I think, the, the, the separation of the great day. The king will sit on his glorious throne. He will divide the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. Imagine in that day that you look around you and you think to yourself, well, there must be some mistake. I mean, I'm standing here with, with Babylonians and Egyptians and Sidonians and people who worshipped Molech and, and Muslims, there, there must be some mistake. I'm in the line with all of the idolaters, all of the people who offered false worship. And in that moment, it'll be too late. Surely that's the motivation to, to get you to see, I need to be studying the Scriptures to make sure I know the real God, the God of the Bible. We don't want to be found offering false worship. And I believe any Christian, if they, uh, the, the thought of it is heartbreaking to us. We don't want to do that. We want our worship to be pleasing to God. That's the second one, false worship. The third one is unbelief or lack of trust. The third danger of not knowing God is unbelief or lack of trust. We said last week that the knowledge of God or a familiarity with God and His ways necessarily increases our faith. The more that we see it, the more our faith grows. The more that we see He said this, and then he did it. He said it and he did it. He said it and he did it. The more our faith grows. And, and hopefully you understand that's what the whole Bible is. Everything in Scripture is, is literally that. Beginning at Genesis 3.15, here's what God said. Everything out from that is he did it. He said it and he did it. He said it and he did it. All of the prophets, as they prophesied, we, we, we think of them as predicting the future. But more often than not, all they're doing is tracing the line of teaching back to that original promise, the, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, the war between them two, and uh, the, the Messiah who will come to crush the head of the serpent. All they're doing is pointing back to that promise and the things that built upon it, proclaiming the judgment that is to come upon sin and the great deliverance that is to come in the Messiah. They're all just preaching... Look looking back to prior revelation and bringing that to the forefront. The whole Bible is God said it and He did it. He said it and He did it. He said it and He did it. He said it and He did it. That's, that's what it is. It, it, the more you see that, the more your faith grows. This God has always, only ever did exactly what He said He was going to do. Always. Well, you learn that and that increases. But if you don't know God, 
the opposite happens. Unbelief, lack of trust. The more we know of God, we're, we're stirred again and again to run to Him in times of need. The more we know of God, we learn to act more instinctively, to, to run to Him more quickly. As a, a young believer, there will be times when you find yourself beating your head against the wall. Why did I not just trust Him? Why did I not just trust Him? And the longer you grow, the more quickly and instinctively you say, I'm just going to start trusting Him. I'm just going to trust Him. I'm just going to trust Him. And it, the, the gap between whatever the issue might be and trusting in God gets smaller and smaller and smaller and the, the beating the head upon the wall gets shorter and shorter. You grow in that. It, it becomes more and more instinctive. Obedience becomes more and more natural. Obedience is merely trusting that God's ways and God's prescriptions are good and right. Obedience is the product of faith. When you obey, you are believing God. That grows as you know God. But the opposite is also true. Without knowing God, what happens? You either remain in your, your, your natural unbelief, or we could say with a small knowledge of God, there are always going to be areas of doubt and distrust, unbelief or lack of trust. Our faith is always going to be in proportion to, our, to a real, uh, lively, growing knowledge of God. They, they will always go together. Now the passage that he references is Romans 10.14, so we'll look there. Romans chapter 10, verse 14, and he, he says he knows the text applies directly to the preaching of the gospel, but he's making a wider application with regard to the knowledge of God. Romans 10.14 says... How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, the, the logic, the broader principle is well, no one calls upon one if they don't believe that one is able to answer the call. And you're not going to believe that that one is able to answer the call until you learn of them and their ability to answer the call. And that's true of God. You, nobody's going to call on God if they don't actually think God is able. And nobody knows that God is able until somebody comes along and, and, and there is a revelation of God to them. When they hear of Him, they call. That's true of initial salvation, initial conversion. We hear the gospel. We recognize our need. We call upon the Lord. But I think sanctification from that point is, is the same way. Growing in our knowledge of God leads to increased trust in God and belief that God's ways are good and right and therefore we obey His ways and therefore knowing God produces holiness. It produces obedience. I know Him. I've never seen any of His ways that I thought, that's not good. I've always thought, how beautiful, how wonderful are His ways. I've always thought that, and so I'm going to walk in them. The more I see, the more I walk. And knowing God leads to holiness. And, and again, that would just be a manifestation of belief or faith, trusting that God's ways are good. The flip side of that would be unsettledness, anxiety, or worry and fear that we, we call being prepared. 
but very often it's just worry and fear. Those are the, the fruits of not really believing and trusting in God. Not knowing that He will provide, He will take care, He will come through with everything that we need. And, and those things, unsettledness, anxiety, worry, fear, they all disappear as we give ourselves to the knowledge of God. We can give ourselves to the knowledge of every possible thing that might potentially happen within the next six months or year or five years or ten years or twelve years. We can give ourselves to knowing all of that and say, well, I just want to be prepared because it might happen. Or we can give ourselves to the knowledge of God so that regardless of what happens, we're confident. We have faith. We have trust. We're settled. So... Third danger of not knowing God, unbelief or lack of trust. Number four, an indifferent or apathetic view of sin. An indifferent or apathetic view of sin. If we go back to what we read in Psalm 50, 21, or or sort of related to that that verse, our knowledge of God, our, our thinking about God always relates to our view of sin. We could say it always relates to our view of ourselves. And and Calvin would say there's no way that you can study God without growing in your knowledge of yourself. And the more that you grow in your knowledge of yourself, the more you will understand what God has said about Himself. They they kind of go together. Our knowledge of God will always relate to or alter our view of sin, for better or for worse. If you don't know God, that, that is going to lead to an indifference or an apathy toward sin, which is the opposite of God's view. God is not indifferent toward sin. God is not apathetic toward sin. He, it's the opposite. Now, now, why is it true? Why is it that, that if we don't know God, we gravitate towards an indifferent or an apathetic view of sin? If we do know God, we think of sin the way He thinks of it. Well, I think it's because we instinctively gravitate, to, for good or for worse, by our thoughts of who God is is who this God is that created us. We are made in such a way that what we perceive of Him automatically shapes how we perceive everything else. It's it's a connection between us and our Creator. We're made this way. No human being can escape the inextricable connection that they share with their Creator. Even if they're not thinking, well, my low view of sin is because of my lack of knowledge of God. They might not say that, but if they have a low view of sin, it's because they don't know God. Again, Psalm 50, 21. If we imagine God's view of sin is indifference or apathy, these things you did and I kept silent, well, then we will instinctively follow with our thinking of sin. We bring God like us. We bring Him down. You thought that I was one like yourself. We bring God down. He's like us. He's indifferent. He's apathetic. And once we bring God down, we then take the liberty to lower our own view even further below. Well, if God is here now, well, I can come down here and we go down, down, down. Our tendency is always to reduce, to go down further and further away from God. Now, the passage that he references here is 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-four, And we can turn there or you can look at it in the book. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-four is a command... Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this 
to your shame. The ESV translates it, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. The the point is, they were not sober-minded, and so he says, Wake up, snap out of it. Clear, clear, get your, get your head clear. They were sinning. He says, stop. Here's the picture. Without a knowledge of God, it was like they were living in this drunken fog, not able to make sense really of, of the world around them at all, staggering around like a drunkard. Imagine a, a, a child, a small child taking a tennis ball and a tennis racket into a world-renowned museum and just throwing the ball up and whacking it around and bouncing it off the walls all around him because in his childish ignorance, he's not able to really understand the gravity of the place that he's in. And everybody looking at him would say, what a moron, what is he thinking? But he's a child. He's not able to make sense of it. And that's how we are uh, in our sin and and without a knowledge of God. We, we, in our folly, wander around foolishly uh, according to our natural inclinations without realizing the severity of where we are in God's world before God's face as creatures in God's image. And yet we, we just, it's like kids with a tennis racket and a tennis ball. And from the outside looking in, we would look at it and we would say, what are you thinking? But when it's in our own minds, it's like we're in a drunken fog. We're not able to make sense of, of reality. The way out is to truly know God. Knowledge of God brings a true understanding and gravity to our sin. Here's a test. You can, you can test yourself and this will show you how, how much you know of God. Now, remember, when we, when we talk about knowing God, I'm not talking about the ability to list a bunch of attributes, even though I hope you can do that. I'm talking about your... your Internal, real apprehension and knowledge of who God is. You can test it by answering questions like, How do you feel about sin? What are your thoughts about sin, specifically your sin? When you sin, what do you think about it? That'll, that'll show you a little bit of what you think about God. Are there any sins that you think of lightly? These sins are not that great. These sins are great. Now, I do believe that there are ways that we might categorize and put sins at different levels. But if we come to certain kinds of sins and we say that's a sin and it's not that big of a deal, I'm content to live on in that sin for the rest of my life. It wouldn't really bother me that much. Well, that shows you've got a a low view of God. God doesn't think that way. Even the smallest sins, God must and will purge from us before we live with Him. Do you think worse of the sins of other people than you think of your own sins? What does that say about your knowledge of God? That means somehow you think God is unjust, that He's going to deal with them uh, in a way not like He's going to deal with you, that He's going to be more severe with them or should be more severe, that maybe He's, he's omnipresent with them and He sees all their sins, but He doesn't see your sins and so there's going to be inequity in the way that He treats them. It exposes our, our low views of God. One song that we sing rarely but sometimes says, You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may see its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate 
Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the Word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. He says, you want to know the true weight of your sin? You want to have a, a deep view of your sin? Look at God. Look at what God has done to punish sins in His own Son. Growing in our knowledge of God, which comes into its most crystal clear expression at the cross of Christ, we can't but learn to think of every sin as a most heinous evil. We look at the cross, we say the God of the Bible is a God who did not spare His own Son when our iniquities were laid upon Him. That's who God is. He doesn't overlook sins. He doesn't think lightly of any sins. An indifferent or apathetic view of sin. Number five is lawlessness. And here we move on from our thoughts about sin to our actual practice of sin. In the book, he, he gives a little explanation of this word. He says, The word lawlessness refers to the state of living apart from the law or will of God. It is living as though God had no law or had get, never given His law to men. It is one of the most grievous consequences of an ignorance of God. Without a proper knowledge of God, we are lawless by nature and we only develop and expand and deepen that lawlessness as we go on. And so he takes us to Proverbs 29, 18, which says, Where there is no vision, <clears throat> the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. And he points out, here's the note, in this context, the word vision does not refer to a supernatural dream or vision, but to the revelation of God's person and will <clears throat> through the Scriptures. The Scriptures reveal God to us. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of His will come from the Scriptures. Where there is no revelation of God, no revelation of His will, the people will go off unrestrained. They will run off in lawlessness. Think of the images that we've seen in the past several years of rioting and looting. At times, you see these videos of people looting stores. Why are they doing that? Well, they think... Now is the time when there will be no consequences, no accountability. I'm not going to have to answer for any, to anybody for what I'm doing, so why not smash out the windows and take stuff and set it on fire and run down the street and just keep doing the same thing? They're unrestrained because they think, I'm not going to have to answer for this. I'll do whatever I want to. It's the same with men and our knowledge of God. Those who do not know God imagine that there will be no consequences, no accountability, no answering to anyone else for their actions. And because they think that is reality, they go off unrestrained. Now, I do think it's important to note that the, what we see in, in those scenes, that's not something brand new sparking up in the hearts and minds of those men and women who are doing that to, to stores and places of business and things like that. That's not something just out of the blue. All we did was provide the right circumstance for people to act what was already in their hearts and minds to begin with. They simply gave the right circumstances for us to see what they had been all along. In other words, when we watched the news and we saw rioting and looting and those things, 
we got to see the real state of our nation. We got to see that's what the people of the United States will do when they think there will be no consequences to their actions. And in the same way, when you, the way that you act, when you are able, if you can do this, to mentally distance yourself from the concept of consequences and accountability that come with God, the way that you act in those moments, maybe God's not in, immediately in your thoughts and you, you, you conduct yourself in a certain way, the way that you act right there, that is the real you. That's not the exception. That's the real you. That's who you really are. Changing your thoughts and your actions and your speech around Christians or in seasons when the reality of judgment has been heightened in your mind doesn't make you a Christian. It's not all of a sudden, I'm a new person. No. You're, you, now is the exception. The way that you act on a normal basis, that's who you really are. And for many people, it's utter lawlessness because they don't know God. You're simply exposing the reality that you do not know God who is always present. You just know Christian people. And when they're present on certain occasions, you act a certain way. When they're away from you, you change the way you act. You don't know God. You just know those people. You restrain yourself around those people. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. He's always there. He sees everything, knows everything. He's watching the way you act. The first text that he references here is Hosea 4, 1 and 2. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. You go through and you fill in the blanks. No faithfulness. That word could be stability, firmness, reliability, truth, swearing, murder, adultery, no kindness, deception, stealing, violence. These are the th kind of things that characterize a people who do not know God. And he points out that these are parallels that we could see in our own society every single day. What are we to discern or determine except we live in a place full of people who have no knowledge of God. They do not know God. Lawlessness. Then the last one, number six, is divine judgment. I'll move quickly. The most frightening consequence of an arrogance of God is divine judgment and destruction. The most horrible of all of the consequences of not knowing God. Hosea 4, 4-6. Let... Yet, let no one find fault and let none offer reproof. For your people are like those who contend with the priest, uh, punishable by death under the law. So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also will forget your children." The notes says, The lack of the knowledge of God is devastating. It leads us to being rejected as an instrument of God 
and to the eventual destruction of individuals and societies, our ignorance of God will even have a devastating effect upon the generations that follow us. Then Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God refers to His righteous anger or indignation against sinful men. It is important to note that man is not a victim. The Bible teaches that fallen man is a hater of God, Romans 1.30, and hostile to His law, Romans 8.7. It is because of man's ungodliness and unrighteousness that he rejects, ignores, and even suppresses the truth about God's nature and will. If you don't know God, you have only judgment and destruction to look forward to. Now let me ask this, and I'll close with with a couple of questions here. What makes the thought of hell so terrible to you? I hope that we're all the kind of people that from time to time will think about hell. What makes it so terrible? Is it torment and pain? Or is it never knowing God? Being forever separated from God? Or to put it another way, could you endure an eternity of peace if in that peace you were still void of the knowledge of God? Do you find that to be a tolerable eternity? Give me peace, quietness, have that for eternity but you won't know God. Now, I know we would say that's not possible, but in in theory, would that be an acceptable eternity to you? Peace and ease, void of the knowledge of God. If you would say, deep down, I I actually think that I I could deal with that. Well, then this study is for you. You need to study the character of God. Studying the attributes of God will, by the help of the Holy Spirit, bring us all to see that the one true living God is one who is so captivating, so enthralling, and so perfectly beautiful that the very thought of an eternity without the hope of ever seeing Him is its very own torment. To go on into eternity without ever seeing Him as He is That should be the most unbearable thought in our minds. And if if it is, at least a little, then the flip side of that will be true. Then the, the greatest aspiration that I have in this life, until I see Him, in this life, is to seek Him, to know Him more and more. The believer who is growing in his knowledge of God grows more and more like Moses, begging that he might see God's glory. And like Jacob who says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I'm not going to stop begging until you show me something of yourself. That's how we ought to be in our study. Reading the Scriptures, Genesis, Nehemiah, Acts. Wherever you are, pray, God, show yourself to me. I must know you. If I don't know you, I know nothing. And I want to know nothing apart from the knowledge of you and yourself. Let's be that kind of people. Let's pray.